0: What a great song and a good segue into our message today. So if you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 6. I love that third verse. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Um, I don't know if that's how your heart feels, but my heart feels that way from time to time. And it, like I said, it's perfect segue into... Our text today in Matthew chapter 6, as we conclude our study on the Lord's Prayer, uh, we're going to look at our need to be on guard against sin. And we'll also examine this great doxology provided to us at the end of the prayer, which gives us great encouragement to forge ahead, trusting that God our Father has heard our prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, today we're going to look at verse 13, but I will read once again the entire Lord's Prayer, starting at verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that we can gather once again around your word. Lord, I pray as your word goes forth that you would speak to your people. Lord, build us up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. As the psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Father, that your word today might be hid in our heart, that it might take root deep in those areas of our lives, Lord, where we need your word. Father, that you, by your goodness, would bind our wandering heart to thee. Lord, we are so prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave you, Lord, the God I love. And take our hearts today, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In your name, We pray. Amen. Proverbs 4.23 says to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. One of the devices of the enemy that I see within the church today is to convince people, to convince Christians, to convince pastors that man's heart is not so bad. That man's heart is actually pretty good. Uh, We hear this from who we would consider heretics uh, on the far extreme, such as folks like Joel Osteen, who says things like, you know, deep down, man's heart is pretty good. You know, deep down, he says 99.9% of people are good. The enemy I see has infiltrated the church with these teachings, and a lot of this comes from what we also call cheap grace, or easy believism. And this is the idea that Christians can just make a profession and then live like anything, live like the world, dress like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, but that person is saved and eternally secure because they repeated a prayer, got baptized, walked the aisle, so on and so forth. But their heart is generally good, people would say, and that man's heart is not bad, they just need a little help you know i was thinking as i was studying it's it's one thing for unbelievers when they look on christians it's one thing to them for them to revile christians for their bigoted doctrine for their uh, exclusivity or not inclusive of other, other religions or it's one thing for them to slander them because of all kind of false things but it's another thing when they can rightly identify hypocritical christians who fall into grave and egregious sin, or Christians who claim one thing but yet habitually live a life full of sin which would contradict their profession. Too many churches today don't even talk about sin from a salvation perspective, right, but also from a sanctification perspective. Once people are saved, the majority that I see of uh, contemporary Christianity—it's—it's it's not about being sanctified and, and doing what's pleasing to God. Not about not uh, you know falling into sin. Not—it's not about becoming holy as God is holy. But it's how now that you're a Christian, you can live a better life. How now as a Christian, you can have heaven on earth and live free of problems and free of sickness and have you know more money than you could imagine. And it creeps in even into you know, non-heretical uh, churches. So too many churches don't talk about this, sin, and they don't talk about the need for Christians to become conformed to the image of Christ, which, friends, this is the whole reason, according to Romans 8.29, for why he even saved you. It says that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the first among firstborn among many brethren that's romans 8 29 so it says that god predestined you not for you not to live your best life now but he predestined you it says to be conformed to his image the whole reason why you're still alive, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, is so that you would be sanctified and become more like Christ, to grow in holiness, to grow in sanctification, so that you can proclaim the glory of Christ to lost and dying world. But Jesus, in our text today, highlights the need for his disciples to take temptations seriously, to stay humble, and to stay alert because our heart's tendency, our heart's natural tendency is to go astray. Just as we sung in the song just a moment ago, prone to wonder. Our hearts, even the most devout Christians, your heart is prone to wonder, wander, to leave the God you love And Jesus here in our text today is telling us that we need to be diligent in seeking God's help to be delivered from both the internal attacks of your selfish, prideful, and lustful heart, but also seeking God's help to be delivered from the external attacks of the enemy. So here in the Lord's Prayer, as we wrap up today, Jesus gets done in verse uh, 11 Addressing our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Then in verse 12, he addresses our spiritual need, which I went over last week. Our greatest need to be forgiven of our sins. So Jesus now, moving in a very logical order, tells his disciples now watch out that you may not enter into temptation. But this whole prayer is very logical in its nature. You know, just as a way of refreshing, he opens by telling us that we pray for our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Remember, these first three petitions are not about us. They're about God and his glory. And then the next three petitions are about man's needs, but even those point to the glory of God. And so now in verse 13, uh, he wraps up with the last petition. And, and there seems to be two petitions if you read it. It says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So some want to say, hey, that's two petitions. So there's really seven. Uh, sure, it's one petition, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Uh, but I'm not going to split hairs about that if you want to say it's two petitions, but they're well connected to each other. So what is Jesus exactly Asking us to pray for here. He says, lead us not into temptation. So this has brought up the question throughout the ages. Are we asking for God not to tempt us to sin? And if if that's true, well then why would Jesus be telling us to ask God not to tempt us if God can't tempt? So is God, I'm sorry, can God tempt us to sin? That's the question. Well, the answer is a resounding no. The word here is a verb where he says, do not lead us into temptation. It's a verb, and the verb literally means to bring to. Okay, So we're asking God not to bring us to temptation. So here is what is a very interesting fact in my study that I found, that this is the only petition in the Lord's Prayer that is not in the imperative mood. The imperative mood, all of the rest are in the imperative, which is a direct request. Okay? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, give us. These are things that are in the imperative mood in the Greek. These are a direct asking of God to do something. Okay? Now this one verb is not in the imperative mood, which it can be in other texts. But this is called the subjunctive mood. Okay, again, a little technical, but it'll prove the point I'm trying to make here. This subjunctive mood is similar to the imperative mood, but there's a slight difference. The subjunctive mood in the Greek refers to a hypothetical action in the future or present tense. So this expresses a request of prohibition but not necessarily from the one you're speaking to. Following? Let me say that again. The way that this is expressed in the subjunctive mood, subjunctive mood, is that you're expressing a request for a prohibition, but not necessarily directly from the one you're speaking to. When we ask God, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking God to directly give us to provide for us. When we're asking him, do not lead us into temptation, do not bring us to the point of temptation, we are asking him to prohibit us from being in a certain situation where we are going to be tempted. Do you see the difference? So an example could be, if I am asking somebody, don't shoot me. I am asking a direct imperative request for that person not to shoot me, versus Do not allow me to be shot. Do you see the difference? That person is not the person that may be shooting me, but I'm asking him to not allow me to be shot. And so that is the mood that this is in. Do not lead us into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. There again, where deliver, that word is in the imperative. So this is the only petition in the Lord's Prayer that's not in the imperative mood, in the direct asking of. So God, we're not asking to God not to tempt us to sin. And the rest of Scripture confirms this. James 1, chapter 12, verse through 15. Well, I'll start at verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So God cannot be tempted by sin, and he cannot tempt others to sin. But while God does not tempt us with sin, God can and God will test us through trials, through suffering, through persecution. He can lead us into a trial. He could even lead us into a situation where we're going to be tested. And that's what he did with his own son, uh, Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it actually says, The uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So you think about Job. Uh, You think about how God tested Job. Uh, Do you think Job was tempted to sin? I think he was tempted to sin. And his wife helped him with that temptation. you recall? He, the wife just said, curse God and die. And so, G, so Job was tempted to sin in the testing, but that temptation was not from God. Do you see the difference? Uh, God will lead you into times of testing. God will lead you into times where you have to lean upon him uh, to come out of the test. And you might even be tempted in those situations to Sin, But God does not tempt and cannot be tempted. So what we're saying here, what Jesus is telling his disciples to do is to pray that you would not be led into the situation where you are going to be tempted to sin. But instead, we're asking him to deliver us from evil. So there's three things that we can pull from this text. Well, many more than that, but three, uh, three of the, the chunks that I want to pull And and the first thing is this. When we pray this petition, excuse me, let me start over. We must pray this petition because the evil one, Satan, is bent on our destruction. We must pray this as part of our regular prayer life, this petition, because Satan is bent on your destruction. It says that we ask, deliver us from evil. Now, evil here in the text is an adjective, and there is a definite article before evil. So some translations translate it as the evil one. You may see that in your Bible. We ask God to deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from evil. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, if you are in Christ, no matter your status in life, no matter your age, if you are in Christ, you have a target on your back. And the enemy is set, and he is bent on your destruction. The enemy desires to take you down. He knows that he cannot make you lose your salvation, so the best he can do is cause you to fall into sin and render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. And make you to cause to be as a hypocrite in the eyes of the world. Satan wishes to have you. And if you're a parent, he desires to have your children as well. Now, he is not all-knowing. He, he does not know the plans that God has. He does not know how God will work upon your life, your kid's life. But he is bent on causing your fall. Satan has successfully lulled to sleep many Christian parents, leaving a wide open door into their family and into the lives of their kids. Only to see their children rebel against God, never come to a saving faith, and then be surprised and shocked like, where did this come from? But Satan has lulled parents to sleep in our culture. Christian parents has lulled them to sleep so that they wouldn't be on guard both for their walk and their children's walk. So we need to be, we need to be vigilant. We need to be on guard. You know, there's a, there's a pendulum that swings too far when we see the charismania that goes on out there. Uh, some of us that went to the conference, there was a great presentation by Justin Peters, uh, and the title of it was How False Teachers hate the sovereignty of God. And he showed clips of many false teachers to, you can see it, that they hate the, the doctrine that God is sovereign and not man. They want to make man sovereign. So they say things like, well, God needs man's permission to do anything on earth. And that God is not sovereign over all the affairs of the earth. Uh, and you see these ridiculous things. Uh, and then there was one, uh, one clip that he showed where, you know, they had this staff and it was almost this mysticism. They had this big staff and they were coming together rebuking all of the uh, racism in all of the world. Okay, I mean, just silly things. And they were, were saying things like, you, ha- you have the power because you are a, a little God to command God to do what you tell him to do. But I'm afraid many times the pendulum swings too far in the other direction, where people ignore the real work of the enemy. First Peter five eight says, Be sober, be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion lion, seeking someone to devour. So the incorrect response to the charismatic mania is to completely ignore or even deny the activity of Satan and the activity of demons. You see, sometimes we can get in our Christian echo chambers and we don't see the demonic activity. But friends, come with me to Pride Festival. Come with me to an abortion clinic and start speaking truth and you'll see demonic activity. As a matter of fact, one gentleman who is an evangelist. He traveled to Israel a couple months ago. He was in India. He was at the G3 conference, and I got to meet him. Uh, And during one of the days, him and ten other men went out to preach the gospel in downtown Atlanta. So I asked him how it went. Uh, And I won't describe everything because we have little ones in here, but they met a woman uh, who they shared the gospel with, and they started to pray for that woman. Well, demonic activity began to come out on that woman, and and it included her falling to the floor It included some obscenity that she did with her with her clothes uh, and then cursing and the middle finger. And it all came out and it was just them trying to tell her the truth of the word of God. So demonic activity is very real and we need to be aware of that. And you may not see it in your uh, in your Christianese circles, but but the demon is out. The devil is out to take you down. Now, that doesn't mean we live in fear. It doesn't mean we bind the the enemy, uh, the devil, but it does mean we need to be alert. And we have many passages in Scripture where we need to be on guard. Uh, We can't let our guard down. So while we are victorious, in a sense, because we are co-heirs with Christ, and because God is all-powerful, and He will not allow you to ultimately fall out of salvation, if you're in Christ, there is now no condemnation in Christ. But even all of that, friends, that does not negate the truth that the devil will do all that he can to take you down. And it starts with small compromises. It starts with small compromises. So God is sovereign, yes. He has determined the beginning from the end, yes. When you fall into sin, even that is part of God's predetermined plan when you fall into sin God had decreed from the beginning of time that you would fall into that sin at the same time he is not the author of that sin and you are responsible for that sin when you overcome temptation that was part of God's predetermined plan but we cannot excuse our sins with the sovereignty of God we cannot excuse our sins. Yes, God is sovereign, and you are responsible for your sins. But God not only determines the end from the beginning in terms of your salvation, but he also uses means to accomplish his will. He uses these passages and others as means to, to keep you from falling, as means to sanctify you and to help you to overcome temptation and attacks from the enemy. Jesus even prayed this very thing for you. As we see in our text, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Jesus prayed something very similar in John 17, 15. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, speaking of his disciples, but to keep them from the evil one. So Satan is out to see you fall. Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to them, Lord, Lord, With you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. But he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So we see these truths right here in this text. God is sovereign. God knew that Peter would fall into temptation. He knew Peter would deny him three times. But then he says to Peter, When you turn again, when you repent and seek forgiveness, strengthen your brothers. Now, what was Peter's response? Okay, Lord, thank you. I'm going to be on guard that I don't fall into temptation. No, Peter's response is he had confidence in himself. And what did he say? He said, No, Lord, I'm ready to go to both prison and death for you. He had overconfidence, not in Christ, but in himself. We too can fall into this temptation once we uh, sort of conquer some of the besetting sins in our life. Uh, We can be overconfident that we won't fall back into that. Uh, Even into your uh, life before Christ, even the the things you used to do before Christ, we can be overconfident in ourselves that, no, no, I'm never going to fall into that again. There's no way I would even go near that. Friends, we have to be careful if we find ourselves... Speaking those things in our mind. First Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. Take heed in the Greek is it's called, it's blepo is the word. It literally means to wake up, watch out, open your eyes. We need to take heed lest we fall. So we should never be overconfident like Peter was when Jesus uh, told him that you were going to fall. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Uh, and we need, to have, we need to be careful that we're not overconfident in ourselves as well. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with every temptation will provide the way of escape. Who will provide the way of escape? Not our own ability, But God will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. While God is sovereign over all of our affairs, all throughout the Bible, we are warned to take heed, to be careful how we walk, to be careful to obey his commands. In my version, there's at least 75 instances in the Bible where we're told to be careful. Many of these instances are in Deuteronomy, just to name a couple. Deuteronomy twelve twenty eight. be careful to listen to all these words which I command you so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. In verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take it away or take away from it. Deuteronomy 16.12, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Ezekiel 36.27, speaking of the prophecy of how God will regenerate hearts, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe, observe my ordinances. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5.15, we're told, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Titus 3.8, we're told to be careful to engage in good deeds. All throughout the Bible, God is sovereign. He has predestined you. He has uh, drawn you. He has justified you. He has sanctified you, and he will glorify you. All of that is under the sovereign will of God. We heard that a thousand times this weekend at the G3 conference. But that does not negate all of the passages that we are given and warned about being careful. Take heed lest you fall. Do not lead us into temptation. God, deliver us from evil. So we must make this petition a regular part of our prayer life because the enemy is bent On your destruction. You dads, Satan is bent on bringing you down. Because he brings you down, he brings your family down. We need to be on alert, as Peter said, because the enemy is prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And again, it starts with very, very small compromises. Satan is not going to use the big temptations where you automatically, nope, nope. He's going to use those little compromises, uh, those little slip-ups. He's going to look for those little cracks in the doors so that he could get in and tempt you so that you would fall into sin. So we must pray this petition because the enemy is out on your destruction again, when I say destruction, if you're a believer, you can never fully fall away from salvation. There's no condemnation. But he is bent on your destruction in terms of bringing you into egregious sin that will wreck your witness, wreck your effectiveness for the gospel, wreck your family, wreck your relationships, wreck everything. And you may go to, And you'll still go to heaven if you're saved. But he just made you ineffective for the kingdom. Second, we must pray this petition because our hearts lead us astray. We must pray that the Lord would not allow us to be led into temptation and we must pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil because our hearts will lead us astray. There was some uh, paraphernalia at the, uh, the conference. Uh, cups, shirts, hats. I think one of our guys got one of them. It says, do not trust your heart. And it references Jeremiah seventeen nine. 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're told from the beginning of the scriptures to the end that man's heart is totally depraved, meaning that outside the grace of God, even those that are regenerate and love God, Outside the grace of God, your heart will lead you astray. And we need to be on guard for that. As I read earlier, James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. James is talking to believers here, friends. James is talking to believers. So we need to understand that we cannot trust our own hearts. Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sit against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. We cannot be guided. We cannot be led by our, our emotions and our feelings. We have to look at what God's word says, even when it doesn't match our heart. We must be diligent to guard our hearts. We must be careful to pray that we would not be brought into temptation but be delivered from evil, to be rescued from sin, to be guarded from the evil one. Because again, our hearts will lead us astray. Third, when we pray this petition, we are acknowledging our dependence upon God. Now this was almost the same exact point uh, in one of the other petitions, but in this sense, we are acknowledging our spiritual dependence upon God. In this petition, we ask him to not bring us to the place where we're going to fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word but here is Allah, and it's a stark contrast. We are asking God to deliver us from evil, to deliver us from the evil one. And the word deliver here literally means to rescue from either active or some, some pending danger ahead. When we pray this petition, brothers and sisters... We are humbling ourselves before a mighty God, placing our absolute dependence upon Him to keep us from falling into sin and falling totally away. I want to give you a newsflash here. You cannot keep yourself from falling into sin. Let me repeat. You cannot keep yourself from falling into sin. When we pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil we are supposing now that we can't keep ourselves from falling into evil. You cannot even keep yourself from falling into any sin outside the grace of God. While the believer is secure in their salvation, it's not you keeping yourself. It is the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who keeps you from falling, and when we pray this petition, what Jesus is saying uh, to His disciples is that we are acknowledging that if not for your grace, God, I would fall away and go into my old life before Christ. The end of Jude, chapter one, uh, verse twenty-four, says, "Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence." Of his glory, blameless with great joy. It says now to him who is able to keep you from falling. Now, this is a salvific verse. To him, to God, who is the only one able to keep you from falling and to make you stand in his presence. What does it say? Blameless with joy. Think about that text. He is the only one able to make you stand in his presence and not experience the full weight, punishment, wrath for your sin. He is the only one who is able to keep you from falling away and falling into sin. Second Peter 2 Peter nine. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under or keep the unrighteous under punishment. It says, "The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation." Who's rescuing who? God is rescuing you. And I read earlier 1 Corinthians 10:13 that no temptation has overtaken you, but as such common demand, and God is faithful. And it says later in that verse that God will provide the way of escape. Please understand Brothers and sisters, this is key, that God could at any moment take the reins. He could pull the reins back of his grace. He could pull the restraining grace off of your life. And if he did that, you would fall into grievous sin. Do you believe that? Or do you think, no, there's, there's, there's no way. I, I got this. He could pull back his grace from your life. You understand that. Those besetting sins that you used to struggle with, or perhaps you even struggle with now, if not for the power of God and His grace, you would run straight into it, friends. That's what God declares in His Word. That's why Jesus tells us that we ought to make this a part of our regular prayer life, that He would rescue us from evil that he would not allow us to be led into temptation where we would fall because we would do it apart from his grace. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, he had a fascination with spiders from early on in his childhood. In one of his sermons, he compares a sinner, okay, not saved, A a, a reprobate sinner. He compares him to a spider that's dangling by a single thread over a fire, and that fire is hell. And God is holding that thread and could let it go at any moment. He says in this sermon, "Quote and your own care and prudence, the best contrivance and all your righteousness." would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Wow. This same goes for the believer, brothers and sisters. If you're in Christ, outside of God's saving grace and the sanctifying grace of God, you too would drop And would have no chance of staying out of the fire of sin. This great truth. This great truth, what it ought to do is not cause us to complain, wow, Mark, you're really, you're really a downer. This great truth ought to grow our love for God. This great truth ought to grow our love and devotion for Him. This should fan the flames of our heart so that we realize, wow, God, this great truth. Of Scripture. Your grace is constraining me. Your grace uh, and your, your kindness is keeping me from falling into sin. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. It ought to cause us to forge ahead with love for our Savior. So when we pray this petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are recognizing that we are nothing without his grace. We are recognizing that we totally depend upon God to keep us from falling. Now, let's briefly look at this great doxology in the Lord's Prayer. In verse 13, it says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our catechism says that this prayer, what does it teach us? It says it teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him. And in the testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen. I want you to notice how the prayer begins and how the prayer ends, both with ascribing praise and honor to God. This great doxology, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. It echoes and reverberates the second petition where we ask your kingdom come. We see yours is the kingdom and not our kingdom. When we pray yours is the kingdom, we are acknowledging the rule and reign of Christ. Psalm 47 verse 2. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king Over all the earth. Then in verse 7 of the same psalm, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Yours is the kingdom. God is the great king of all the earth, not us. Then we pray, yours is the power. When we pray, yours is the power. We acknowledge his sovereign power over all creation. God is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. He not only has power over creation, which he does, he is the very source of all power. Psalm seventy-seven fourteen says, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength or your power among the people's. Well, God displays his power in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. He displays his power in creation and in his providence. How God orders all things to accomplish his own will. He does this by the power of his word. Jeremiah ten twelve, He who made the earth by his power. And then in Psalm 78, 26, in reference to God raining meat on the Israelites, the psalmist says, He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power directed the south wind. God has all power over his creation, when he created it, and now when he sustains it, he sustains it by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.13. He displayed his power in the resurrection. Proving that he is God. Who has the power to raise the dead but Christ, but God? In Philippians 3.10 Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He displays his power in regeneration. As God uh, displayed his power in creation, He he displays his power when he regenerates your heart, when you're dead in transgressions, in your transgressions, when you are slaves to your sin, when you are hating one another, and hating the true God of the Bible. When you were enemies to God, the power of the gospel came. God's power came, and in the same way, He created the world by His power. In the same way, He resurrected our dead spirit. He gave us life and radically changed our nature. He caused you to be born again by His power, the same power that created the universe. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is that same power, friends, that raised your dead spirit to life. As Stephen Lawson says, what can a dead man do? You were dead in your sins. And that power of God is what raised you to spiritual life and gave you a new heart, gave you a new mind he displays his power not only in our regeneration, he displays his power in our sanctification. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything. What's the text say? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And how? The text says through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. By his divine power, if you're in Christ. He has granted, past tense, everything that you need for your life, your spiritual life, and godliness, for your sanctification. He has provided everything, and it says he's done it through the knowledge of Christ, which is declared in his word. That's the same power that he had in creation, same power that he had, has over all creation, same power in the resurrection And in regeneration, that same power is God's power he displays in your sanctification. And he also displays his power in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. You know the text. Paul sought the Lord to be delivered from the thorn in his flesh three times and Christ said, My grace is sufficient, for in your weakness my power is on display. My power is made strong in your weakness. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And finally, yours is the glory. When we pray, yours is the glory, we are acknowledging that we are not God and nothing is for our glory. But it's all for His glory. We acknowledge that we are but finite creatures and that He alone is God who gets all the glory forever, it says. And that forever there is recognizing that He is infinite. He is eternal, everlasting. But also His glory is eternal. His glory is infinite. His glory is everlasting. What a great doxology to this prayer and then we put our stamp on it when we say amen. We recognize that only through the mediatorial work of Christ that God hears our prayers. May it be when we say amen. We are acknowledging that God by his grace will hear our prayers. So in conclusion, I want to make And really drive home two points of application. And the first is that if you're in Christ, you must order your life in such a way where you're not leading yourself into temptation. Don't place yourself in situations that will tempt you. Why would you pray that the Lord would not bring you into temptation and yet bring yourself into that very temptation? Romans 13, 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Make no provision. That means forethought or providential care. We want to take forethought into feeding our family. We want to take providential care and make sure that things are going to happen that we need to happen. And in the same way, we need not to do that for our own sinful lusts. We need not to make provision for the flesh. So we need to know, friends, our own hearts, and we need to know the besetting sins that we are tempted to gravitate towards. Now, these could be those respectable sins that we like to sort of brush off, right? You, know, you take away the murder and the adultery, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with that, uh, you know, but God cares very much for what we consider respectable sins right you know a little anger here a little bitterness here you know a little gossip here uh, god cares very much for those sins he hates those sins so in the same way we would protect ourselves from going down the path of you know adultery or fornication uh, or lusts of those things or or murder of the heart in the same way we would want to take care for those things we need to not make provision for the flesh when it comes to what we think are respectable sins, uh, like murmuring against God and his providence or, or complaining uh, against um, something out of your control or, or just being a complainer. You know, those things that God wants to rid yourself of, we need to do the same thing and not make provision for the flesh so that we can grow in holiness. And then the second point of application with this text is we, and I want to encourage you to take time to deeply consider what areas of your life that you're trusting in yourself and not God, specifically in regards to sin. What areas of your life do you feel like you got under control and you might be trusting in yourself and your confidence like Peter was and not trusting that God is keeping you and not leaning upon God because that's exactly that cracked open door that the enemy is going to look to get in. And so be alert, be vigilant, uh, be on guard for your heart. And so now as we wrap up the study on the Lord's Prayer, we went through you know, the introduction, addressing God as our Father. We went through each petition, petition by petition. I want you to consider your own prayer life. You know, Jesus in chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 6, he makes the assumption that you pray. He makes the presumption that his disciples pray. He said, when you pray. So I want you to consider, friends, your own prayer life. Do you pray? Jesus assumes that you do if you're one of his. Do you pray when you're by yourself? Children, do you pray when you're by yourself? Do you only pray when your parents ask you to pray or tell you to pray? Do you go to the Lord yourself, children, and seek the Lord on your own? Do you pray by yourself, children, when you're not asked, that the Lord would keep you from your besetting sins, whatever those might be inside your own household? Do you pray to ask the Lord to help you to honor your parents' And to be nice to your siblings, and to do all the things that your parents teach you from Scripture. Because somebody who's been born again, who loves God, although imperfectly, they seek God in prayer. And God uses things like this message and the whole Sermon on the Mount, or excuse me, the whole Lord's Prayer, God uses this as a means to sanctify His people. So if you're in Christ, Lord willing, uh, hopefully you've been convicted over the last couple of months about prayer. And, and Lord willing, you have taken this to God and even asked God, help me, Lord, to be more diligent in my prayer life. Do you pray? Do you pray with others? Do you pray with your siblings, children? Uh, do you pray with your family, dad, mom? Do you pray with your friends? Do you pray with your coworkers? Remember, all these petitions are in the plural. Deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation. All these are in the plural. So God is well pleased when we pray together. Forgive us our debts. Give us this, our daily bread. Do you pray? Well, as we move forward, In the Sermon on the Mount, let us not just ask if we pray. Let us ask how do we pray. Do you pray according to the template and the model that Christ gives us in the Lord's Prayer? Are your prayers aimed for the glory of God or the glory of self? Are your prayers aimed with getting more stuff or doing all things and using all your stuff for the glory of God? Do you constantly pray that the Lord would forgive you of your sins, cleanse you, sanctify you, lead you not into temptation? Do you pray according to God's will, according to His standard and not your own? So as we move away from the Lord's Prayer and move continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, let us be reminded of this great doxology here in the Lord's Prayer that we can take great encouragement, That if you're in Christ and you struggle, welcome to the club. But guess what, friends? God hears your prayers, as imperfect as they are. Don't stop praying. Forge ahead, trusting him, giving all honor and glory to him, because as a father loves to hear his young child come to him and talk to him in their sweet voice, God loves to hear the voices of his children that come to him in prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers, God. As messed up and as amiss as our prayers can be, Lord, your grace is sufficient, God. And I thank you that you hear our prayers and that you use your word, God, to conform us to Christ. You use our word or you use your word, God, to conform our prayer life. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us deeply consider the model that you've given us to pray. Help us, God, by your grace, seek you daily, that you would deliver us, rescue us from the evil one. That you would deliver us and rescue us from our own deceptive hearts, our own sinful tendencies, Lord. God, there's great joy when we are walking in obedience. Help us, Lord, to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Help us to hide these great truths in the Lord's prayer that we might not sin against you, God. And when we do, help us, God. Help us to confess our sins as you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, and as we turn to the Lord's Supper now, God, I pray that you would open up our hearts, test us, try us. God, if there's anything not pleasing to you, Lord, I pray you would reveal it now that we would confess and repent of our sins and take the Lord's Supper, in a worthy manner, trusting in Christ. In Jesus' name.